Visa knows that local businesses are the heartbeat of our communities. Whether they're our corner stores, our coffee spots, or our favorite shops, local businesses have always been there for us. They remember our orders, they call us by name, always giving back, making a difference, and going that extra mile to support us and our community. And right now, more than ever, local businesses need our support. So now it's time for us to return the favor. The next time you go shopping, make the choice to shop at local businesses and look for the contactless symbol and tap to pay with a contactless visa to help support your community because where and how you shop matters. Visa, everywhere you want to be. Official partner of the NFL. For the Athletic Podcast Network, this is the update. I'm Adam Copeland. On today's show, we'll talk to Melissa Lockhart, who covers the A's for The Athletic, about the A's playoff hopes, or lack thereof at this point. Of course, the A's losing Game 1 yesterday. They play again today, Game 2, from the Oakland Coliseum at noon local time here in the Bay Area. But Oakland A's fans have got to be frustrated. Another opening series loss on the wild card round. This one coming against a tough opponent in Lucas Giolito, who carried a perfect game into the sixth inning of yesterday's ball game. So we'll talk to Melissa about the A's hopes and how they'll fare with Chris Bassett on the hill in Game 2 and whether or not they'll go back to a bunch of lefties who have not beaten the Chicago White Sox this season. It's Wednesday, September 30th. Always great when we can talk to Melissa Lockard, who covers the A's for The Athletic. You can hear her on the Seamheads podcast as well. Melissa, Game 1 of the 2020 wildcard season, I think, or the series, I should say. I think everybody's happy we got through the season and that it was healthy, that we got all 60 games in. But A's fans, after one game, have got to be like, oh, no, not again. Not this deal again. Oh, yeah, no, I, I think um, it's anything indicative of what I was seeing on Twitter. It is an unhappy group of people right now, for sure. The White Sox are a good team. This is a tough matchup. And, and I think to have them as a, a seven seed here in the postseason is, is maybe not what people thought. I know they were competing for the AL Central. They're tough against left-handed pitchers. They're 15-0 now against left-handed starters. They've got an OPS over 800 against left-handed pitching this year. They were comfortable in game one against Jesus Lazardo. Your thoughts on what you saw from Lazardo and, and whether or not maybe they should be going a different direction beyond game two if they win game two. Chris Bassett is lined up right now. When you said comfortable, I think that was the right word. You know, I think Lizardo actually had good stuff. He struck out five guys. He didn't walk anyone. Um, his command was pretty good, especially, I thought, on his off-speed pitches, his breaking ball. But he got beat on two uh, fastballs that, you know, he intended to put elsewhere and put him right down the middle of the plate. And you just can't get away with that with this team. And, you know, he's a rookie. And I think fastball command's the thing that's keeping him from being a very good starter to a great starter. And that'll come in time. I, I don't have any doubt that that's coming. But I think when you're looking at this matchup, it was sort of curious that they went with Lazardo against this team. I think against anyone else, you know, putting him out there game one wouldn't have really been a surprise. But given how well the White Sox hit against left-handed pitching and given how powerful they are and that Lazardo was prone to the occasional fastball over the middle that, you know, you're hoping the guy just misses and these guys don't miss, it was a curious matchup. And, you know, it would have been kind of interesting to see how Mike Fires would have fared in that 
that matchup. Uh, he pitched so well against pretty much the same lineup last season, but they didn't go that direction. And, you know, I think we're probably leaning towards originally Sean Mania for game three, if they get to a game three. My guess is that the direction changes now, just seeing how comfortable they were against Lizardo. I think not having seen the White Sox this season, maybe they looked at the left-handed starters that the White Sox had seen during the year and thought, well, okay, but these guys are not exactly Jesus Lizardo, which I think was a fair assessment. But now having seen it in person, I think that probably dictates that if they get to a game three, what they would do there. Yeah, sure. I, I think it makes sense to say you look at, at who the left-handed pitchers were that they faced, but the A's, obviously, they went out and they added a left-handed pitcher, right, at, at the deadline. They tried to bring guys in who were going to help them from the left side. Now you end up in this matchup where you're facing all these tough right-handed bats, a team that hit tons of home runs, but they're good against right-handed pitching, too. They've got a 750 OPS from the right side. Sorry, I gave up a home run in game one to Yasmani Grandal. And looking at the Jesus Lazardo start, though, I know he was a rookie, and I know maybe they look at, at the pitchers that the White Sox face this season from the left side, but he wasn't a rookie in the sense that he's pitched in a playoff game before. He pitched in game one or in the wildcard game last season. Yeah, I don't think it was like a moment that was too big for him or anything. He he very much looked in control of his emotions. I thought his pace was really good. He got two kind of seeing eye singles hit against him in the first inning, and there's a lot of pitchers that maybe would have unraveled at that point. And he came and back and struck out James McCann to end that inning. And you know, really was just two bad pitches. Um, but it's just one of those things where this lineup is not going to let you get away with anything. And um, you know, and he had those those two pitches over the middle. So long term, I think he's probably going to make a lot of postseason starts and I think they're going to be a lot of good ones and and I think if the A's are able to come back and move on to a next round I think he'll still be a very valuable pitcher in that position for them but also on the other side Lucas Giolito looked like a guy who had pitched in the postseason a long time even though this was his postseason debut you're not going to see a lot of wins if you don't score more than run run anyway. Yeah, Lucas Giolito joins Ed Walsh in 1906 as the only pitchers for the White Sox to start a postseason game with seven-plus innings pitched with two or fewer hits allowed and one or no walks. It was a hell of a start for him for a guy who threw a no-hitter this year. Pretty impressive. You were out there at the Coliseum, and and things this year were obviously different as far as uh, emotion went. And last year, it was raucous. I was out there at that game, at that wild-card game against Tampa Bay. They do that whole thing where they want all the fans waving the towels right as they come in nationally live to the Oakland Coliseum. But was there in this game it's a playoff game and I know on TV at least from my perspective I was kind of pumped up I felt like people on Twitter were pumped up I'm wondering from your perspective in the ballpark did it feel any different than any of the other games you've covered at the Coliseum this year Yeah, you know, it definitely did not feel like the energy of a regular postseason game. That's not to say that it didn't feel like the players were into it. I think the players were very much into it. But you just didn't have that sort of beating heart moment that you feel when the crowd gets really loud. And, you know, even as a writer and you're being objective, you know, you start to feel that emotion. And there really wasn't that. It did feel a lot more like you were watching a game in the middle of August or something like that. Because, you know, the only cheering you really could hear were pockets of... And for whatever reason, where I was sitting, I could only hear the White Sox group that was cheering. So even when the A's did something good, uh, I wasn't able to hear where that cheering was. But, you know, that was like three or four people, right? So it's not like you're listening to 55, 60,000 people. And you know what those, the sounds that they make, the drumming, the chanting, the different rhythms that you get at the Coliseum. And even though the soundtrack was playing some of those, you know, you, you had the sort of bump, 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 bump things at the moments that you normally would when the bleacher guys were going, but it just didn't have that 
that same feel. So it's a tough thing. I don't think these guys were not amped for this game. I think they very much were into it. I think they were very ready. They looked loose. Um, you know, this wasn't a team, I don't think, on the A side that looked like they were too tight for the moment either. But I mean, this whole season, they've had to manufacture their own adrenaline. And for sure, I think today was probably another one of those situations. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. I wonder about the pitching staff being handled by a young catcher here and a guy like Sean Murphy. We just talked a lot about uh, Jesus Lazardo as a rookie. I don't think Sean Murphy gets enough credit when a guy slots himself in or steps in. I think you and I have actually talked about this in the past, and I, it maybe is an unfair comparison, but when a catcher can take over, and he did it late in the season last year, at one point, I think in that playoff game last year, you had a battery of two really young rookies in Murphy and Lazardo. But what he's been able to do sort of seamlessly step in, had a big knock today in, in a rally that kind of got snuffed out, I think he He's done an exceptional job, and I think we don't talk enough about him. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think he really acts like a veteran back there. And the fact that he really, he doesn't even have a full major league season in a lot of ways. You know, it was a 60 game season this year. And then last year, it was just those 20 games at the end of the year. And he was hurt for much of the AAA season. So, you know, you're looking at a guy that the bulk of his experience is double A or lower. And yet, you know, he comes up there, he does his homework as well as anybody in, you know, baseball behind the plate. And I think he's only going to get better and better at, at kind of getting the feel for, you know, when certain pitches should be called or not called, but he's going to be a real foundation for this team moving forward. Um, you know, as long as he stays healthy and his knees stay good, what he's able to do defensively. And then as a bonus offensively, he was essentially their best hitter for the last month of the season. So he won't win the rookie of the year. I think uh, Kyle Lewis has got that one sewn up, but he's certainly a guy that should be in consideration. When you look at game two, Chris Bassett against Dallas Keuchel. Dallas Keuchel, a former Cy Young Award winner. And I felt like Chris Bassett, last year he finally got healthy and he pitched at the back end of the rotation for most of the year and got knocked around a little bit. And and, and in the offseason, we interviewed him actually, and he said that he felt like he had got a little tired, that he hadn't pitched that many innings really in his career or for a long time. But this year was sort of conducive to getting a guy stretched out or, or getting a guy who hasn't pitched that many innings used to being in a game for a while. And I thought he was great in 2019, 2020. He's 5-2 and two with a 2-2-9. 1.16 whip. He's been really good. I'm just wondering your thoughts on Chris Bassett. A lot of people feel like maybe he should have started game one. You need to win game two or it's all over. Just your thoughts on the matchup in game two. Yeah, well, I think, you know, the fact that he is pitching game two is a reflection of the fact that they do think he's their best pitcher right now. I think if you sort of look at a lot of the uh, pitching matchups around these wild cards, I think there's a lot of you know front offices that feel like game two is where you want your best guy because you kind of want your stopper if you lose that game one you know you don't want to be down your best guy and have lost game one you know I think he's in that position he's a you know a guy I think they trust with the emotions of having to be the one that saves the season you're right I mean his his stuff has only gotten better and better as the season went on he talked about how the season was on pause you know for the COVID uh, positive test he had a chance to throw three bullpens during that time and he made some adjustments at that point that allowed him to be able to get you know another step forward from what he had done up to that point in the season and that sort of led to this September that I think his ERA was 0.34 or some ridiculous thing so but I think he gives them a very good shot at at least extending this series to a third game. Yeah, you're right. It was a .34 in September, and he struck out 25 guys in 26 and two-thirds innings, and he dropped his ERA almost a full point over the uh, five starts in the month of September. And the crazy thing was in his last outing, really economical, seven innings pitch, he struck out six, and he only threw 81 pitches. So that's what they're looking for. I wonder just your thoughts real quick on the way out about how Bob Melvin may manage the bullpen in Game 2. Uh, we saw how comfortable they were. We mentioned it again against left-handed pitching. You've got Jake Diekman, who did throw in Game 1. I wonder if he tries to stick with right 
right-handed pitching, knowing that guys like Wendelkin can get outs for you. You haven't seen Liam Hendricks get a whole bunch of guys yet. So uh, just your thoughts on the managing maybe of how you go into the bullpen beyond Chris Bassett in game two. Yeah, I mean, I think they'll be pretty aggressive. You know, obviously it is a do or die situation, so I don't think they're going to leave any bullets in the gun, right? They're going to go as much as they can. I don't know that Wendelkin will be available just given the fact that he threw two and two thirds innings in the first game of that series. But if they need him for an out or something with a couple of runners on and two outs, they they could do that because he's been so good at stranding inherited runners this season. But yeah, I would expect them to lean pretty heavily on guys like, you know, Petit and Soria and even Lutrevino who warmed up but didn't come in to uh, game one. You know, if things got out of hand early, you might see some starters come in. I think certainly Mike Miner would be somebody that that could come in there. Who knows? Mike Fires could be somebody that comes in at that point. But I think if it gets to a safe situation and they think the matchups are good for Liam Hendricks to go more than one inning, it certainly would be something that you could see as well. I just feel for A's fans, you know, they haven't won a, I think it's now six straight games now in the postseason they've lost. If you want to call them series or count them as series, you could, I guess, but you go back to those three wildcard games and those are all one game eliminations. You just really want to see them at least get to a do or die situation in game three. Give Bob Melvin a shot to put the right guy in there to get the win. But we appreciate the time today, Melissa. We'll keep covering you and following you through the postseason. And hopefully it's a lot longer than just uh, the next couple of days here. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it, Adam. Always great insight from Melissa Lockard, and we'll be back at it today. Oakland A's live from the Coliseum at 12 o'clock. They'll send Chris Bassett to the Hill, who's been real sharp over the last month of the season, so much so that we talked about it. Some people thought maybe he should have been the Game 1 starter, but it's now an elimination day for the A's. They'll be opposed by a tough lefty, Dallas Keuchel. He's been sharp and a former Cy Young Award winner in his own right. Thank you to everybody who listened today. Thank you to Melissa, to Brian, and thank you to you, the listener. If you're enjoying the podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever it is you're listening to us. We've got tons to get to. The NBA draft right around the corner, of course, right now, into the heart of the NFL season, and much more playoff baseball to discuss over the next couple of weeks, and hopefully more Oakland A's baseball to discuss. But later in the week, we'll talk a little bit more about the 49ers and the Philadelphia Eagles, the winless Eagles, who tied the Cincinnati Bengals last weekend. We'll talk about that game. That's going to be played at Levi Stadium this Sunday night. And then a little bit more on the San Francisco Giants as they now head into a long offseason. Don't miss exclusive in-depth coverage of this unprecedented sports season. Subscribe now and save. Sign up now to see for yourself the creativity, reporting, and storytelling that sets The Athletic apart. And if you go to theathletic.com slash the update, you can receive an all-access subscription for just $1 a month. Sports are back and you won't want to miss breaking stories on your favorite teams. So go to theathletic.com slash update to receive an all-access subscription for just $1 a month. Thank you to everybody for listening. Enjoy the week. We will talk to you on Friday.